You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. And my 
my brain just exploded. I was like, that is a brilliant question. It taps into existential dread that we all have. It's a good question about the dead body. It's a good question about animal-human relationships. It just has it all. And thank you, child, for bringing this question to me. And that's why I decided that I wanted to do a book of questions from children, because I think they just cut through the BS and get us to where we need to be. So how many of you actually read the book already? Yeah. Okay, that's a good, that's a good number. Yeah, everybody is just like one person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I was growing up, um, my parents didn't allow us to go to funerals until we were a little bit older. I probably think it was my first funeral until I was about 10, and we didn't really talk about death in my family. So. Um, what age do you think is the appropriate age to start having conversation with young people and children? It's interesting that you end up working at a funeral that you're like trying to keep me away. I think I'm always for working with your child and listening to your child and letting them make decisions. So I think that there's a fine line because on one hand, I think you should absolutely let your child go to a funeral. Especially if it was grandma or someone they loved, or the body if you're having a home funeral, or the body's in the home. They can absolutely see grandma, fold his hands. But I also don't think it's healthy to force them to do that. To, I don't know if you saw the Haunting of Hill House, but there's a scene. There's a scene where the funeral director there is like, you march up and you drag the child down the aisle and you force them to interact with the body. And that's also not good, because a child at a young age is just being introduced to death in all of these sort of difficult ways. And so allowing them the ability to feel like they're making little decisions, and they have this agency, and they can say, yes, I want to see it, or no, I don't want to see it, I think that's really important to give a child. Because death feels makes you feel so out of control, even when you're an adult. So giving that child just a little bit of that feeling of control back and being able to make their own choices, I think, is really important. And they have that ability from, you know, age six, age seven. Nice. So how old were you when you first were interested in dead bodies? <laughs> I truly can't remember a time when I was in um, Well, I had a somewhat traumatic experience with that when I was about eight years old. I was at my little shopping mall, and from the really high open air atrium mall, from the second story, I saw a young child fall. And that uh, messed me up. Because <laughs> I was eight years old at the time, and it just really, I developed OCD and developed, because I just I had nowhere to put my emotions of all of a sudden understanding that people could die at any time. My parents could just this child to presume die. My parents could die, my father could die, my friends could die, my grandparents could die, everybody could die. And it was really difficult for me, and I wish to this day that I had lived in a culture where it was totally normal to talk about it. And I had a lot of outlets for rituals, for conversations with people. And my parents are amazing, but they weren't going to dive deep into these conversations about mortality with their eight-year-olds. So I just kind of suffered for a couple of years. And I think that the work that I do now, which is talking to adults and you know, writing a whole book talking to children about the dead body, really is to try and I want to say heal some of those wounds that takes this conversation to a therapeutic place, but <laughs> to be able to try and help work on a culture where we can have these more open conversations and be honest and not coddle our children. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you talk to a lot of, of kids now, right, about this. And uh, are you getting more questions, even crazier questions? Could there be a, a, a volume two? Volume two? <laughs> I don't know. I'm writing the, the next book I'm working on is sort of more serious and about funeral industry reform, which doesn't sound as fun as it's going to be. I promise it's going to be a pro But I would, I would not go back to it. This was a lot of fun to write, and 
Um, I also learned a lot, especially in science. Uh, I don't know if you know this, I won an award for science writing on Goodreads, which is beautiful. My, I'm gonna say my AP biology teacher. I should not have been an AP biology teacher. <laughs> that stands for advanced placement. No, no, no. <laughs> if you told him that I would one day win an award for science writing, he would have keeled over and died himself. So learning the amount that I was able to do about science and communicating science was incredibly valuable in the process of writing this book. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say ever on another book like. Books about death, and this is no, this is no particular book. There are a lot of these books, 
But it will be fun to cover lessons in death and dying. <laughs> you know, it's like a very specific type of branding that says this is how we have to talk about death. This is what indicates respectful discussion of death. And I have a lot of respect for that, but I don't think it's been working that well. I don't think people still are afraid to talk about death. And in a way, if I have to take a lot of criticism from the funeral industry for the way that I do things, but I'm willing to do that in order to get through to the actual public, which is my audience. My audience is not to make the funeral industry happy with me. My audience is make the public understand these things. Well, my thing is kind of happening. So I drove up to the city, I'm going to do the McDonald's drive-thru. I got into a car accident, and like crashed it up, and pulled over again. Okay, you got it. Okay. So you got into an accident with the McDonald's drive-thru? Yes. With the body. With the body and the back. But it was a legless woman. Um, 
but there's a lot of places where they don't want their dead people looking dead, but they also have a really clear vision in their mind of what they want, and if you can't give that to them, they have to families yet. Yeah. Angry um, for that? We did have a family, and with a daughter, her father passed away, she came in and she's very upset, and she basically said her father didn't look dead enough. Um, so when we involved, we asked for a picture, a photograph of um, your loved ones who store them to look as much like the photograph. And my boss did an actually great job in this guy just like the photograph. But in her mind, her dad was sick, he suffered a little bit, his face was a little more sunken in. She, you know, we filled him out a little bit and he looked too much like him old, his old self and not what she was used to seeing. That's really that's really fascinating and why it's so important to manage expectations. With, with people because you don't know the time someone dies. A lot of people have never even been to a funeral. A lot of people have never seen a dead body. So we as funeral directors who see dead bodies every day, we might have no idea what this family thinks going to see a dead body is going to be like. You know, for all we know, they think there's going to be like a Mickey Mouse cake and a party and the body is going to have like, you know, bubbles coming out of its nose. Like, you have no idea what people's expectations are of a dead body. And that kind of makes it sort of confusing when they come in. I want to stay right there. So, you, you dispel a lot of myths in this book. Um, can we finally just get it in the air once and for all about these dead bodies sitting up and jumping up and moving? Can we just put it out there tonight? It doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, it's always someone's cousin's friend who worked at a morgue in 1982. <laughs> who has a story about a body sitting up or a body groaning or a body making noise. Does not happen. I mean, there, every once in a while, there will be some sort of tick, you know, a neural tick after someone dies. Or there will be a lot of bacteria, and they'll kind of almost have a bacteria fart inside and make a little groaning noise because the, the gas buildup has to go somewhere. So it's sort of a. <laughs> but other than that, there's no sitting, there's no Nosferatu sitting on you, hand reaching up to grab you. <laughs> Now, I will say this, though, yeah. um, because it is science, um, sometimes an embalmer can over-inject the body and there could be a chemical reaction. So not a city but mm -hmm. you may see some type of movement, um, arm ball, something yeah. kind of move that might make you run out of the embalm. That's also when you're doing something with the body, yeah, right? right? You're like purposely trying to, in some ways, change the position of the body or break it up from the way it was in rigor or whatever you're trying to do. Sorry. Apologies to those of you who wanted this rumor to be true. Alas, it is not. Do, do you feel bad about any of the secrets that you're telling in this book? No. <laughs> because I think it makes people feel better. To know. I think knowledge is power. I think knowing, going, knowing, knowing what's going on behind the scenes is power. If I had ever had someone like any of you in this room come up to me and say, once I found out this is what went on during crematory, it made my life worse. And all I can think about is my mom being cremated and it's horrifying and I wish you hadn't told me. That would make me feel really terrible, but I would take note and think about how I presented it. But truly what I hear is I was plagued by not knowing what was happening to my mom behind the scenes. And now I do know, and I'm not happy that mom is dead, but it makes me feel better and calmer that I have this knowledge and I have this ability and now that I have it, I can tell other people when they're confused and make them feel better. And even my funeral home now, one of our main policies is total transparency. If you have any questions about what's going on, we're going to tell you the truth. Awesome. Did you, did you have any pushback when your book came out? Maybe, maybe a little bit. Maybe uh, from the people that I was writing the book about. They may have wanted me to change their names or something like that. You didn't change their names? We're not pretending. 
But I, I also felt the same way writing my book. I wanted people to know what happens when you trust the funeral home with your loved one, because we really don't know. And essentially, we turn our loved ones over to strangers for the next, you know, 40 hours to seven days or so. Um, and we don't really think to do with them. We don't know what type of people they are. And so I wanted people to have some type of comfort in knowing that, um, your dead body will be fed. I will take this to Was like, 
what can we do to feel better about this? And I was like, ah, I don't know, it's horrible. Like, it's, it's absolutely terrible. And you know, all I could say was like, you don't deserve to live in a world like this. You do not deserve to have this be your lived experience, and it's not fair. And I don't want to ask you to do this, but every time that you can share your story a little bit and talk about what happened to you, it helps a little bit. It can help other people and other people around you. And that's not your responsibility to do that by any means, but if you have the ability to do it, it helps. And for me, it wasn't so much. My dad is a police officer, and he was a shootings and homicide detective. So sometimes our work would intersect uh, a little bit. Just you know, some of the cases that he had been working on um, may have been a case that I was working on at the time. So um, there was some overlap there, and that, that probably was my biggest connection. <laughs> Even though we couldn't talk about those cases, you got a little bit of information. Um, 
there was only a select handful of black funeral homes where they could work and it would be fine but the moment they broke a nail or they got a little emotional then they were usually dismissed um, and luckily for them they could still work in the field they could work at the medical examiner's office or a crematory or a cemetery um, but a lot of them just left the industry altogether after committing that time to actually going to school and taking the, the national board or the state board. So I'm also like you, I don't know how we change it. Um, more women owners. More women owners, yeah. Sorry. Um, and, you know, not having it illegal to dismiss someone for that. Yeah, I mean, well, of course they didn't say that's why they yeah. didn't go, but, you know, yeah. Are you trying to, is it time to stop? Oh wait, is it time You've been creeping slowly towards us, which indicates. Are we doing audience questions? Okay, do we have a question? I do. Um, and so, I'm going to wait for the microphone to come to you because we are podcasting. Hi. Hi. Huge fan of the reason I didn't heard about your because I was describing my early I think documentary films. I was describing my early documentary, The Travel of the World. Mm. Looking at the culture's ways of dealing with death and funerals and compared to the US. So I just read a book about this. So I read a book. The one thing I'm wondering from that, what is it that you think in our culture struggles with death compared to some of the other cultures you look at? What is the reason why we don't deal with that? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm very lucky that um, I try and never speak ill of other cultures' death practices, and so when people are like, oh, what didn't you like about other cultures, I'm like, first of all, I'm not going to say that, and second of all, the one with the problem is us. Like, we're the bad one. So, like, this, and I can speak that way about my own industry, and, you know, it's not rotten to the core, it just has real problems and real systemic problems that need to be addressed. Um, I think our, the funerals of, funeral industry's ability to make us believe that the dead body is some sort of diseased time bomb to be carefully managed by pseudo-medical professionals is a huge issue because it's made it so that nobody feels comfortable with the dead body unless it's been mediated in some way where there's no reason for that. You have other countries where they keep the dead body in their home for weeks or months or years. Like, and not the home, like, in the closet, like, in the bed, in the same room as you. The dead body is just not dangerous in that way. So I think that the funeral industry's ability to market themselves as the necessary middleman between you and your dead loved ones is the thing that has done us the most damage as a culture. 
But that is a fabulous question. Thank you. Oh, someone in the back. Hi. Yes. So, um, I just recently wrote a paper for my uh, college English class on ethnocentrism. Awesome. And um, I had a question, like, also based off of what you were just talking about, how, like, you know, I guess media has portrayed the dead as being enemies or scary. Um, how relevant in today's society would you think of ethnocentrism being? Um, in what sense? Like, um, in a way where people judge others, like death cultures and like rituals mm-hmm. on their own, and like how people, like I watched a video on cannibalism, mm-hmm. and um, people are like scared about that or making judgments about that because it's weird and crazy and right. scary in you know, media. So like how relevant would you think like, in today's society that would be? Yeah, it, it always, from the very beginning of doing this work, it always has baffled me how free we feel to look at other people's sacred rituals and go, oh, gross. <laughs> like, truly, how dare you? Like, really, what are you thinking? The first time I ever I came across, I mean, I knew about the, the Tana Taraja and how they preserve their dead bodies, and as I was mentioning, keep them in the home for a long time. And they did a feature on them on, like, the Daily Mail or something. And I saw it, and I read the comments, I should not have done, and just like, let them rest in peace, this is disgusting, this is disrespectful. It's like, what are you, but, but I think it's always important to turn on them and say, or turn it around and say, for a lot of people around the world, the idea that we pump this bright pink chemical into our dead bodies to make them stay you know, fresh or not decomposing for a long period of time, or that we put them in these giant ovens to burn them, these are scary things. Anything you do with a dead body is going to be kind of salacious because it's connected to a dead body. And just because it's the thing you normally do doesn't mean it's the respectful thing to do. Respectful, there's never been a culture throughout human history that has not been respectful of its dead. Like when it's your own dead, you're incredibly respectful. You cannot look at another culture and say, I think you're disrespecting your own dead. No, they're doing the thing that they find to be most respectful. And the only culture that's come close to kind of disrespecting their dead has been our culture in recent years because we're afraid of them and it costs too much money. Um, so yeah, that's what I think. But I'm glad you wrote about that. I think about that a lot. And we'll take about two more questions. Oh, who wants them? Yes, me. Go get it. Go get it. Okay. Um, so having, I'm going to inject a little I'm going to ask you to inject a little humor here. Um, because having married almost every single immediate family member except for my sister, I'm a little afraid of death. This is not injecting humor so far. I'm very sorry. I'm very funny about this. Um, well, no, I'm actually really funny. But my question is, have you ever had situations where you've had families that sit there and basically squabble in the middle of the funeral like arrangement session about like costs of flowers and all this other stuff? Because I feel like I was the only one that was sitting there, no more flowers! They die too! <laughs> That's a, that should be on a t-shirt. <laughs> I mean, you saw us both like emphatically nodding as you were talking. Um, I was talking to the gentleman at the coroner's office today about this exact thing because, of course, it happens at the coroner's or the medical examiner's office as well. Um, yes, it most certainly does. Um, what happens a lot is that the law is that there is a nest of kin. And each state is really strict about who that is. And by the way, a little plug, you can override that by having a durable a power of attorney, basically, for healthcare. So if you don't have one and your next of kin is someone you don't like, guess who's in charge of your body? Bump someone you like up to the top through that advanced directive. So the what will often happen, we had someone recently where the daughter was the next of kin. No confusion there, but there were all of these family members 
coming out of the woodwork, calling us constantly, constantly. Something about hidden jewels <laughs> with the person who died. And the daughter is like, listen, if there are jewels, I don't have them. Like, I swear to you, I don't have them. But her family doesn't believe that. And they are asked, I don't know if they think they're hidden with the body, I don't know what they think. But the amount that one of the brothers even lied and told me he was from the health office, and would, like they were really trying to trick us, and we just have to keep being like, we don't give any information to anyone who isn't this person. So yes, that happens all the time, especially when it's siblings, because that means there's more than one next of kin. Because normally, yeah, in your situation, because normally it's just like the wife or you know the mom. But when there are multiple siblings, that's when it can get. I found the messiest. But your situation is not unique by any stretch. Although I'm sure you handled it with more grace. Than it happens with about ninety-eight percent of people. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe ninety-nine. I think also sometimes people think that the person who does the funeral arrangements gets the money. <laughs> Wait, that's not how that works. Are we doing the final question? Who have you selected? Hello. Hi. Um. So, like, I know that it's obviously not true that, like. Oh, so we just kind of rise up when you're like preparing the body before the ceremony. But like, um, has like, like, have you ever like felt weird or like, I'm not really gonna say awkward because that's not really the word for it. But like, have you ever felt something weird when you're like in there, like by yourself, just like with this dead body? I, I will say, you, I bet you have more stories about this than I'm just hearing you so far, but I think that I always, the first, let's say the first couple of months that I worked, that I started in the industry, which would be 10, 12, 12 13 years ago at this point, I always was worried about that happening because dead bodies are so, they're like a human, but not. You know, it's really, they're fascinating to be around because you know you recognize them as human, but you can also just tell that they have left the building. <laughs> but they still look human enough, they're like in human form, so they look like they could breathe, or like they could grab you. And I don't feel that way anymore, but I still feel like dead bodies are magic. A little bit, they still, they, they occupy this place between death and life that's really beautiful to me and powerful to me. So I'm not afraid of a dead body anymore, but I would say like even, you know, walking through, I saw dead bodies at my funeral home a couple days ago, and I walked into the corners or the medical examiners today, and it was still like, ah, dead body, oh. They still like excite me and have this power, even, you know, dozen years after I started working in the industry. So do I feel like their presence is still there? No, but I do feel like they're incredibly powerful somehow. Yeah, and I would agree. There's no place safer in the world than in the presence of a dead body. They <laughs> don't talk back. They don't talk back, and they're yeah, living people from families. <laughs> much more difficult to deal with sometimes than the very kind dead bodies. I think is that it? Thank you so much. This is great. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.